Welcome, guys, to the MMOs.com podcast, episode 114. Uh, Altai, joined this week by the one, the only... Omer. There it is. All right, guys, uh, we have good good production for you this week, but as always, let us start with the last week's weekly raid, which mm-hmm. was, how important is co-op for you? And, uh, of course, Fortnite is what inspired this. And uh, we got some, we got a few comments. Uh, a couple of you guys actually said you were not interested in co-op. Uh, and you guys like, I like, you said, I like PvP more. Uh, Easy Machiavelli left a very good response actually this week. He said he liked um, leveling in WoW and the co-op experience, like the unplanned co-op experience. And he mentioned like hatred of the other faction. So like, if you enter a zone that had PvP with the other faction, you would mm-hmm. like naturally work together to kill people from the other faction that you see. Right, like it, it, so it wasn't like you queue together for like a co-op dungeon because that's like kind of structured. He kind of mm-hmm. liked the more unstructured. Well, there's a there's a horde guy. You know, we're two aligned, so let's just go kill him With, without saying a word. You guys just know how to team up. You know, so that was that was, a, that was an interesting dynamic. I think that worked really well in WoW too, because I mean, like, even if like you you gank some random horde player for your alliance, like even if that one guy did nothing to you, you know, you always have a memory of when you got camped by some asshole horde player, you know, mm-hmm. and then you'll be like, I gotta take it out on this guy, you know, and you take that revenge out on somebody else, you know. It seems like almost like a petty dynamic, but I think that keeps players invested in the game, and it kind of makes these emergent experiences happen, you know. And, and yeah, that's a good yeah, word. it's kind of a buzzword, but I think it does apply. Yeah, and I, and I remember so many times in WoW being chased by someone not. Pers- faction who was higher level than me right and I, and I was being chased I thought it was dead for sure but I would turn around and the other guy was dead and then so someone from my faction who was higher level would just help me like save me you know so it mm-hmm. kind of was without saying a word there was some co-op play going on so that's cool that's always fun yeah so yeah co-op good stuff now with that out of the way let us move on to this week's weekly raid and uh, this week once again we're inspired by Albion Online uh, it had a good launch very big launch, still very popular, still packed game, but it's having a few con- controversies now. Uh, <laughs> I think last week, Omar, you mentioned something about they made ganking harder, right? Because once you get yes. off the mount, you can't attack. Now, that caused a few issues, and some people said the game is over because of that. Like, the whole like sandbox experience is dead, you know, it's all, it's Care Bear Land again. But mm-hmm. at least that was a gameplay change, right? It's all gameplay, and you can have different opinions on it, but at the end of the day, it's part of the game, this way or that way. This week's controversy with Albion is a little more complicated. And it's actually very difficult to explain. Uh, I don't know, do you want to explain it or should I? I, did uh, I got the gist of it, maybe if you read it more recently, you can. Okay, so here's what happened, boys. Here's what happened. There's a guild uh, in Albion Online called the Iron Bank. And they're apparently a pretty high-end guild, pretty you know wealthy. And the way apparently plots work in that game is you bid on you know persistent plots in the one realm. There's only one server, so if you own that land, you know, you're the only one who owns that specific plot. So they're trying to bid. They were bidding for a piece of land, and they were outbid. But then they were outbid magnificently, like by a huge margin. And they thought something was fishy, so they Googled around the guy's name who was outbidding them, and they figured out that it was. Well, they assumed that it was a, a Chinese uh, gangster syndicate that does gold farming, gold selling, you know, power leveling, and just straight up credit card fraud. So what they would do is they buy stolen credit card numbers. They buy in-game gold with those stolen credit cards from the official Albion, you know, store. So it's nothing illegal here so far. Well, it's illegal, but nothing <laughs> outside the game so far. Mm-hmm. And then with all that gold, they buy silver from players, right? Is an in-game exchange for gold to silver. And with that silver, they bid up the price for in-game real estate. So basically, they have unlimited resources because they can just keep using stolen credit cards. And it doesn't matter if they get, you know, refunded because 
they they got their silver in game. Uh, so the Iron Bank, uh, I guess GM, left a huge post on the official forums, which got removed. But somebody on Reddit took a screenshot, so you guys can read this whole thing. It's all linked in the weekly raid, but it's a pretty long post. But basically, he's saying, listen, uh, we contacted Elbion uh, to try to you know get this you know stopped, and Elbion offered an interesting reply. They said we can give you 50% of the gold back or the silver. And the other 50% back uh, later. And the reason they wanted a refund is because they wanted a refund between what they had to end up bidding, overbidding, to win, to keep their real estate, and what the third highest bid was. So the, the, the only other bid, the highest bid besides the gold seller, right, the syndicate. Long story short, even they, they said we're leaving the server, even if this particular problem gets resolved, because this issue of outside money, right, whether it's, you know, gold sellers, botters, uh, criminals, they're going to keep pouring money into this game. And legit legit people who just want to role play as the Iron Bank in this medieval world, they're never going to have a fair sh chance. It's going to be pay to win from now till doomsday. And that's pretty much why they said they left uh, the game. And Ooh. I think it's worth mentioning that Albion Online is more affected by RMT than your tra traditional MMORPG. Because whether you're playing Final Fantasy XIV, World of Warcraft, MapleStory, any game, it's really... You know, you don't need money or in-game gill or gold that much. Almost everything is driven by, like, your ability to complete raids, like high-end difficult raids. And that's not the case for Albion. It's money, gives you control over territory, and gives you access to so much stuff in-game. So it's a different kind of progression, and I think sandbox games are more vulnerable yes. to this kind of, like, credit card fraud, this kind of, you know, RMT stuff ruining the game, much mm -hmm. more so than other games. Okay, and then with that, out of the, with that story out of the way, the reason I, I brought it up mainly is... In a sandbox game that the Elbion is trying to build, right, you kind of need to keep control over the real world economy pouring into your game economy, right? Because otherwise, because you don't want it to be complete pay to win, where nothing you do in the game really matters. Because if I work at McDonald's, right, and I use the money I make at McDonald's to just buy uh, gold in Elbion from gold sellers, right? If that gives me a huge advantage over someone who's playing 24 hours a day, right, then the whole sandbox experience kind of melts away it just becomes pointless right so the question is can virtual world stay separate from the real one so can can studios keep rmt gold selling uh you know this kind of stuff away from their games and they've tried for years i remember ultima online everquest even they had gold rmt problems and imagine how much bigger the problem is now with the growth of the internet like back then the average gold seller was just an enthusiastic amateur in his house who just like had bots running like literal he you know he might have like eight accounts in his basement right today they're professional criminal syndicates you know just using these games as a way to make you know huge money and you know uh, launder stolen credit card uh, funds so it is a it is a monumental challenge to deal with this stuff and to, to address your question can worlds world stay separate from the real one I think they I think MRPGs, virtual world in MRPGs is a, is a resounding no. You can have online experiences with MMO elements where it is feasible to keep them separate. Like stuff where, like, you know, maybe League of Legends or PUBG or, again, these aren't traditional MMOs at all, but like MRPGs definitely no. But when the, when the game can have real money features that don't really affect the game too much, it's, it's much more plausible. Mm -hmm. I think the romantic there's there's still this romantic idea that like when you're playing an MMORPG, whether you're a loser in real life, whether you're you know some nerd in real life, in this world, 
like Ultima Line, EverQuest, Final Fantasy XIV, you can be this hero. You know, you can be somebody else. You can be someone totally separate. Mm -hmm. And your merits in that world are what distinguish you from other players. And I think that sounds really nice on paper, but as always, real money is going to ruin it because, you know, even if you're the nerd, but you're really good at the game, the lawyer or the professional who works can afford to just buy in-game currency, buy power levels, buy accounts, and all of a sudden, it is no longer the meritocracy it was, it was intended to be. Mm -hmm. The real world is unfortunately going to creep its way into the world. Though I do think that idea of everyone being on equal footing in a virtual world, it sounds so good, and, and, and it really is like the dream, you know? Like, I would love that... I would love for that to happen, but real money, uh, economics, incentives are going to unfortunately make that dream impossible. Yeah, and to play on that from like the old days, you know, when mm -hmm. MMORPGs first came out, the internet was still kind of new. The people involved in it, you you really couldn't, you really could not easily send money uh, on internet. You know, before I'm talking like before PayPal and stuff. You know, it was really its own isolated island, like like EverQuest, Ultima Online was basically an island. And you know you were on the island. You can do whatever you want on the island. And then when you log out, you go back to the, to you know the mainland, the continent. And today, because of how big the internet is, is it's, nothing's an island anymore. You know, it, it's all so connected with the real world that it's it's kind of difficult to separate the two because you'll always have like Omar, you said, people RMTing, botting, hacking, buying accounts, selling accounts, and it really seems like studios kind of gave up on this because so many studios now allow just direct purchase. Of, of game time or currency directly from the company. So whether it's, you know, World of Warcraft, EVE Online, and Neverwinter, there's always like a premium currency or even the standard currency can be bought. Well, I guess in WoW and EVE, the, the premium currency is just game time, right? But mm -hmm. in games like Neverwinter, there's a premium currency uh, and a, a standard currency. And there's always an exchange between them and the company sells you at least one of those currencies directly. Black Desert Online is a more recent example. Blade and Soul as well with the with the with NC coins, the gold ratio marketplace in the game. It's really been embraced to the point where now it's you know, it's a, it, they they gave up almost unfortunately. Yeah. Well, Black Desert is an, is an interesting example because I think there's two ways studios are dealing with this. One, embrace it and just sell everything yourself, right, for cash. Uh, you know, sell the gold yourself. Or what Black Desert does is, in order to fight the RMT as much as they can. They restrict the whole virtual economy world aspects of the game. So there's no trading in like you know, Black Desert. There's, the auction house is not an auction house. The 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 company sets the prices in the store, right? So mm -hmm. it's the, and then and then obviously that feels less like an MRPG now when it, when it does that kind of stuff. So there's there's two ways to fight this, and neither is working because Black Desert, by the way, has a plenty of power leveling and RMT stuff going on too. So it's it's kind of an interesting story, uh, and it gets even wilder with uh, with the Steve Bannon thing. Do you want to cover that? <laughs> yeah, it's actually really odd because when I first read about the Albion thing, somebody like mentioned on Reddit that it's, you know, people who deal with RMTs are the scum of the universe. For example, even like the, the President Trump's strategist, Chief, Steve Bannon. Chief strategist. Chief strategist. Again, very prominent figure in the White House. He's got a lot of pull and power uh, in America right now. Uh, he was involved with IGE to the point where he was actually playing a managerial role and an actual role running IGE, which is act which was actually the biggest gold-selling farming like, RMT website in the world. We're talking tens of millions of dollars slushing around with RMT. And he was, you know, the headline, I think, on the Washington Post, which broke the story, was that uh, Stephen Bannon once guided a global firm that made millions helping gamers cheat, Yeah, this which is, is pretty pretty remarkable. It's, you know, it's ins you know for, for a whole six months now, guys, I've been trying to connect Trump with MMOs, just so I could talk about Trump, because you know all the news media, they know if you mention Trump, your ratings go up, right? So I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> sneak him in, but now I can sneak him in. 
the the brains <laughs> behind the White House, behind Trump, right? Which is Steve Bannon, the chief strategist. He's the guy who runs Breitbart and all that. He was literally like one of the big big dogs at the biggest gold farming, gold selling company in the world. That is insane to think about. The the world America is being run right now by a gold seller, guys. Just think of it that way. And that's just a gold seller, the biggest gold seller ever. All right. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like that's gonna make a lot of gamers kind of kind of hate Trump to a degree because I think gold selling and RMT is I think one of the most universally disliked mm-hmm. aspects of MMORPGs or gaming in general because we do have as gamers we have this like uh, sense of fairness and I do think again it, it does go back to the the romantic idea of a meritocracy in online games where it doesn't matter if you're a lawyer, or a doctor in real life, or if you're just uh, a, pr- a broke kid in the you know in the projects you know when you're on an mrpg you're on equal footing but uh you know seeing people buy their way into power unearned power it does frustrate people and you no know, honestly it's it's it almost like it, it almost feels like it shouldn't because you, you do derive your own fun but if you work so hard in an online game to get where you are and some other asshole which you know is like so undeserving some like some punk with no skills he just bought an account you know it's and he gets to where you did without putting in the effort the work the grind it, it has this, you know, nagging feeling of injustice, and like, and it, it does get people upset, and it would get me upset as well, for sure, if somebody else, you know, achieved what I did without actually earning it. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, there's a sense of unfairness, but I think uh, the more interesting story here is how much gamers influenced the Trump presidency, like the, the rise of Trump. When I first heard about like all the memes, you know, like there was uh, on 4chan, they were like, we got Trump elected, right? We memed. You know trump to the white house and I, I didn't really believe it right i was like eh, that's that's that might be like a very very small minority of trump's followers right the, the 4chan memers but here's a direct quote by trump for, for, i'll give you the direct quote after the sentence as bannon was running ige right selling gold bannon is a quote from the article bannon became fascinated with the collective power of the gamers who gathered on these sites according to journalist uh, joshua green who wrote a book, Devil's Bargain, about Bannon's rise in the Trump administration. Selling virtual currency was highly unpopular among many gamers, and they railed against IGE in these chat rooms, putting pressure on the company that operated the games not to partner with IGE. And here's a direct quote from Bannon himself. Quote, These guys, these rootless wh- white males, had monster power, Bannon told Green. So <laughs> Bannon, you know, he learned, first, as a gold seller, he learned how much the power gamers had. I don't know, guys, we have, we rootless male, uh, Gamers have a lot of power, apparently. So there you go. There you go. We got we got the power. So yes, yeah, so the gamers got Trump elected, boys. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, like if we could if we could have the idea, like with the with the fact that money should not be allowed to buy unfairness. Like, do you think if that was possible, mm-hmm. that would be a you know? Would you support that? Like, would, or do you just think people should derive their own fund? Because I think we've had a, uh, you know diverging opinions on this one before. Look, I, in a perfect world, there would be games. That are totally isolated, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, you log in, and there's no way to get in-game gold or currency or whatever, rather than playing the game. But that's an ideal. I think it's impossible. I, I think it's impossible too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would like that to happen in, in some form, where you know you, you kind of stand on your own legs. Mm-hmm. But it's you know, people were saying that you know, if, if you have a buy-to-play or a subscription MMORPG, it's reduced. But I think no, that no that doesn't really avoid the issue at all because people could always buy power levels or accounts or just know. gold, just just buy the in-game currency from RMT. Or- if there if there's no gold, imagine there's no transactions. It doesn't matter. You can buy an account with all the power anyway, and that, that still kind of circumvents the whole like meritocracy issue. Yeah, and I, and I, I think, think yeah. I left an interesting question uh, at the end of the weekly raid. 
So my prediction, uh, here's the thing. Are we doomed to settle for pay-to-win business models like those found in mobile strategy games like Clash of Clans? Or should studios try harder to come up with ways to wall off their virtual worlds from real-world influences? So I think the I think game studios today are going down a dark path. Like what, Even if it's something simple like what WoW does, right? You can buy the tokens, the game time tokens. Hmm. I think the road's going to lead one way, Clash of Clans. That's it. Like where you just buy, you can spend a thousand dollars, you know, in one shot to buy, build an army and attack somebody in the game. To see that business model of Clash of Clans or Game of War apply itself to you know, Final Fantasy XIV, World of Warcraft, Counter Strike Go, more traditional non-pay-to-win gaming experiences, it would really, for me, signal the doom of gaming. <laughs> I, I don't know if I would like play newer games at that point because when you start talking about Clash of Clans and Game of War. The pay-to-win element goes through the roof. Like you could spend ten thousand dollars instantly to like build up the best base possible. That would really ruin gaming for me. Like even like I, I would argue what we have today isn't that bad. But I think the reason a lot of people are upset about it is it kind of does foreshadow the path it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think a lot of people get upset over it because I think a lot of the issues about pay-to-win now aren't as big as people make it out to be. It's just that we see where it could end up. Yeah, and it's a powerful incentive for companies to go down that road because here I'll give you an example. This whole Albion back to Albion. The Iron Bank, they're leaving the game, Albion Online, over this uh, bidding for this plot of land, right? Mm-hmm. And it's basically here. The the, comp- the Chinese gold farmers they bid against bid about 3,000 US dollars, right? And that was an exorbitant amount. No other guild could match the gold farmers' bid of 3,000 US dollars. Okay, so that's why this whole guild left the server or the game. But when you put that in perspective, a single like person can spend 3,000 in like a month in Clash of Clans. Right. Oh, easily. Yeah. So, like, the, the the dollar values... So, once you go down, you know, it's so little money to, like, win in Albion. $3,000 for a lot of these pay-to-winners is nothing because they drop that on shitty football, you know, mobile games. So, <laughs> there's no fix for it. If, as, as soon as you allow players to buy in-game currency with, with dollars officially, you can expect, you know, people to pour tens of thousands of dollars in. A guild to pour tens of thousands of dollars in. So, there's no chance of a player who doesn't do that from ever competing we were just talking about imperial palaces in uh crowfall before you know like we were seeing this done in shroud they have it there crowfall these you know these big, you know, ways to spend big big money mm-hmm. yeah and i was thinking the only way you could maybe prevent this have an mmorpg without like traditional progression do you think you can have an mmorpg without any kind of levels yes. or skill systems where you know you, you don't level up by getting skills or levels or xp or even gold in game right mm-hmm. there has to be a way to level up without acquiring items or stats but can a game like that maintain, like, keep people playing? Like, what would be the reason to keep playing? I mean, I think it can. It's it's hard to do. Uh, I think Easy Machiavelli in chat just mentioned something about, you know, all you have to do is make gear and gold matter less while making skill uh, matter more. Mm-hmm. And it's by skill, not skill points, but actual player skill. And a good example of this, unfortunately, not, not an MMO, but is, well, e- even Blade and Soul. Like, if uh, the combat yeah. is skill-based. So if even if we are, two people are naked, if somebody knows how to play the game, They'll beat the other guy, you know, hundred out of hundred times almost, right? Yeah, yeah. And also, Dark Souls comes to mind. You know, there are people who beat the whole game with like the starting sword, because it's all about knowing the the monsters, you know, patterns, and not about just grinding levels. So there are ways Why to is do it. More games like that then, like on the MMORPG front. You know, we we we've seen it on Dark Souls, yes. And Blade and Soul is kind of split into two different ways because you have the you have like the, the PvP arena which is equalized and fair, and then you have the rest of the PvP and the rest of the game where a gear does matter a lot. So maybe if you if you, if you can split it, I think a lot of players would you know mm-hmm. even if people end up paying to win the PvE experience. Yeah, no more. The I, yeah, part, yeah, the right. other and more PG part of the game 
can be kind of you know isolated and mm-hmm. it could be interesting yeah so imagine like a game like albion or eve right eve online where there's like a the 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 green zones and the yellow zones, your gear stats matter. You grind off mobs or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But then when you go to like the PvP continent, right, where you fight over resources and, and land control, over there, gear has no stats. It's just cosmetic. And it's a skill that, that wins the fight. But it is unfortunate we have to like try to devise means of, you know, creating a game where this kind of cheating is impossible. Because I do think Albion Online as a game is pretty well designed. And like there's so much there that's phenomenal. It's a beautiful game. It's remarkably different, but it's a game that's so vulnerable to cheaters and RMTers and botters that would really ruin an, other, an otherwise remarkable experience. And they are ruining it. The botters and cheaters and you know, RMTers already are ruining it, as we've, we've clearly seen. They're outbidding real players, and the bottings would destroy the resource-based economy. And otherwise, I thought it was it's such a good game, and we mm-hmm. can't have good things like this anymore because... <laughs> I hate to say it, we can't have good things because of these cheaters. And, and people that are willing to exploit the game. And I, I don't know how much Sandbox Interactive, the guys that make Elvin, can do to combat this, you know, because, mm-hmm. again, they're, an indie, they're not a giant studio. And even giant studios can't prevent RMT. Yep. But they've created a world which the incentives are so strong for botting because the way resource gathering works is it's so bottable. So many aspects of the game are bottable. And how do you stop that? It, it's literally impossible to stop that. Another good example of how studios cannot deal with this, even big studios, I'm, I'm sure you guys remember the Diablo 3 launch yep. with, the, with the RMT store. Like, everyone thought that'd be a cool idea, right? Like, well, you know, let the gamers cash in their investment of time. You know, like, if you get a good weapon in the game, you can sell it in the, in the store. That thing was a disaster. All the incentives were skewed towards the, the hackers, you know, the botters, uh, the flipper. You know, just to, it invited so much negative uh, attention that it, it just didn't work. So they even Blizzard could not deal with... Uh, that system and they and they shut it down massively first they got rid of rmt altogether right in the in the rmt store mm-hmm. and then they even don't they don't even love trading anymore you can't trade your goods in diablo 3 you can trade with the people that in the same game as you when it dropped for like two hours but after that even that is canceled so they basically did what black desert did and said you know what no trading we can't handle that's it. unfortunate again Companies like Black Desert are resorting to no trading policies. And MMORPGs without trading just don't feel like MMORPGs to me. We've seen other games do it. I, I don't know. It's not coming to me off the top of my head. But when you restrict trading, and you, like what Diablo 3 did and what Black Desert did, it's it's these aren't like design decisions were made to make the game better. Like It wasn't a part of the overall game design. It was done specifically to combat the botters and cheaters. Yes. But it's it's bad that we, game designers have to limit themselves to like, because they realize the problem that's unfixable. I think they've given up on trying to fix that problem. They're trying to design around it. And we kind of lose you know, what you, you know, the kinds of games we can have without that nonsense. Because we're going to lose the kinds of games like Albion, which we can have until you know it's ruined because of the, the, the botters and cheaters. Well, I think, unfortunately, as it stands, all the financial incentives are skewed towards like the mobile pay-to-win uh, system. And then <laughs> I guess if we're done with this, we can move on to some of those financials, Amar, that, that came out this uh, week about how... Yeah. Yeah, all these companies are making money hand over fist with mobile. Yeah, let's go look at um, let's go look at uh, I guess Blizzard first. Okay, they're making a lot of money. Uh, I'll drop you a link. Mm-hmm. A few things I want to share with you as well. There you go. Uh, Blizzard reported their financial earnings this week as well. And you know, again, I follow a lot of these gaming companies. Blizzard is a company I unfortunately never invested in. I kind of wish I did. I've always thought they were too expensive, but they keep getting more expensive. And they reported uh, a record revenue for. A quarter, which they had no new game launches, and both Overwatch and Hearthstone are at all-time high monthly active users. 
and it's weird because I know I know a lot of my friends that, that stopped playing Overwatch, right? Because you know they're moving on to other things. They're playing PUBG, and again, I heard this thing. Oh, like Overwatch is dead. I'm like, wait a minute, how can you say Overwatch is dead? Like, the game literally reported the highest ever uses it ever had, and people are saying it's dead because they stopped playing it. Again, it brings us back to that. Oh yeah, yeah. We were talking earlier uh, during the pregame about this. How uh, when I stop playing a game. It doesn't mean the game is dead, guys. You know, it, just because you stop playing, it doesn't mean the game is dead. You know, mm-hmm. so just keep in mind that a game could be growing even if you no longer want to play it. Yeah. Uh, so basically, they made about 1.63 billion in revenue and net income of 243 million dollars, and that's in three months. You know, who would have guessed that Blizzard was so good at making money? I always make that joke when I put the news up for the game because all the they always beat earning expectations. They beat the, like the, the sales targets they put out for themselves. And, you know, they always surprise everyone how much money they make. But I feel like as gamers, it shouldn't be a big surprise anymore that Blizzard, they make a lot of money. And Hearthstone was on that list as well for, uh, you know, Hearthstone's been out for a long time. Overwatch is a bit newer. You know, Hearthstone, you know, it's been out for a long time. And it's it's the highest ever use it ever had, thanks to the, the most recent expansion, the Ungoro one. There's a new expansion launching, uh, Knights of the Frozen Throne, I think, relatively soon, I think in a few weeks. I mean, and actually, I, go ahead. I was going to say, actually, Activision Blizzard is actually the one... Uh, one of the few, I think, bright spots in PC gaming because, first of all, you kept mentioning, you kept calling it Blizzard. The company is actually called Activision Blizzard. Yeah. But but the only part that matters to us, and I'm sure a lot of you viewing this, is the Blizzard part, right? Uh, and and it's the Blizzard part that's doing the best for Activision Blizzard. You know, Activision. Uh, if you guys look at these numbers I have up here, so Activision made 87 million in uh, operating income this this quarter. Profit. Ki- yeah. Yeah. Profit. And then King, which is the mobile division they bought, made 164. Where, where Blizzard made 225, so almost as much as the other two put together was Blizzard. And Blizzard, besides Hearthstone, uh, it's, all, it's all PC. It's not, it's not mobile. Hearthstone's or, PC as well, to a degree. You yeah, know? yeah, so I'd say at least half or a quarter or whatever of Hearthstone is PC. So Blizzard is basically PC, and it's doing really well. So I think this is ex- Blizzard is actually the ex- exception to the trend, I find, that like where mobile is taking complete control over the market. And actually, I think I want to bring up bring us to a discussion that um, Owen Mahoney, the CEO of Nexon, he gave a pretty interesting presentation a couple of weeks ago about uh, he was talking to a group of investors and fund managers about Nexon and about gaming in general, some misconceptions about gaming, and he talked about the importance of product life cycles and what makes a good game and how they can make more money in gaming. And one interesting thing is he brought up Hearthstone as an example. He said that it's no one should be surprised that Hearthstone is breaking new records today. If you played Hearthstone the day it came out, you knew right from the get-go that it was a good game. I, I played yeah. Hearthstone the day it launched. I knew for a fact that the game was remarkable and it's going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's going to keep growing, right? Immediately the moment I played that game, I knew this is a home run. They're going to make bank off this game. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I, I felt the same way for PUBG. I played PUBG in, in, in uh, alpha or beta during that time when it wasn't even for sale. And it was unbelievably buggy and laggy. But despite that, I knew, holy shit, this is a home run. We're seeing the game continue to grow. And he made a few, he talked about product life cycles and he shared this chart, if you want to show that real quick, about product life cycle. This is how most people perceive product life cycles to be. And for the most part, this chart is accurate for a lot of console games, Facebook games, and most mobile games. Now, when you launch a game at the beginning, you have that big revenue spike. Everyone starts playing and then people start quitting. You know, this is a pretty, you know, normal view of how game launches work. And it's, this has been the case for the longest time. However, if you look at the, the actuality of product life cycles for good games, it's a totally different story. These are the games that make the most money. These are the most successful games ever. 
and he lists MapleStory, Dungeon Fighter Online, League of Legends, and Minecraft. And the difference is pretty obvious between these two pictures. You know, you yeah. don't have this crazy spike at the beginning and a fall off. Instead, you have a pretty steady rise from the get go, and it keeps increasing, 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 building on itself. And it's pretty clear if you played League of Legends back in the day, you played Hearthstone. For me, maybe not MapleStory and Dungeon Fighter. Those weren't so obvious to me, and it's not always obvious, but. If you played League, if you played Hearthstone, you knew there was something amazing here, something special. It was to keep bringing in more and more users. And I learned a few things from his presentation. Because uh, for those that, that don't know, Owen Mahoney, the guy that runs Nexon now, he used to work at EA. Uh, was he the CEO of EA or not? He was in a pretty big position at EA. I forgot what he was. I forgot too. Okay, he actually uh, led the buyout of DICE, the people that make Battlefield. And that was actually one of the smartest acquisitions EA has made. Because let's be real, Battlefield, the Battlefield series and Battlefield franchise is so valuable. Yeah. And it's still remarkably successful, right? I think that's all they and, have, right? They have, they have Battlefield and sports games. That's, that's EA in my mind. That, that is EA. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> yeah. I, 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 of my favorite EA games is the Battlefield games. And he says, you know, um, he tried to make a lot of acquisitions at, at, um, at Nexon. He plans to do more acquisitions. He said he actually tried to buy, for, when, he was working at, when he was working at EA, he tried to buy Nexon four times. Isn't that pretty crazy? He offered oh. to buy Nexon three, four times. They kept saying no, right? Mm -hmm. And eventually, that's why he ended up working at uh, Nexon because he was always talking to Nexon. And at Nexon, he tried to buy League of Legends. He tried to buy Riot Games in two thousand before uh, in two thousand ten, mm -hmm. before they got bought by Tencent and they got outbid by Tencent. Oh, you know, and he's like, we would have bid more money if we had it, but this was pre-IPO. They didn't have a lot of money to bid. I see. So they actually almost, and if they if Nexon had bought Riot Games. They'd be so big right now because yep. again, League of Legends is the world's biggest PC game. And uh, he talks about stuff like uh, live updates being you know, the smartest games, the most successful games spend seventy percent of their development budget on live updates. Whereas you know this old mentality of video gaming is you spend all your money making the game, and afterwards you spend like nothing, just keeping up to date, make some patches and stuff. But the the most successful games spend such a, most of their budget on just updating their game and whatnot. Uh, yeah, and to me, it's just like. Uh... Um, it's, it's, it seems like the whole it just comes down to MMOs versus like single player games I think like mm -hmm. a console game traditionally basically you buy it for 50 bucks it's made to be played for like you know between like 5 to like 50 hours right if it's like a, a platformer or like a JRPG you, know, you play it for like between 5 and 50 hours and then you put it on the shelf like kind of like a book right like a, like you buy a book you read the book you put the book on the shelf whereas the games he lists here like MapleStory Dungeon Fighter League Minecraft these games don't end you know, there's, there's, you can keep playing them. The, the, the content is really the interaction with players. So I think that that's kind of what gives them longevity. But like, it, th that doesn't always apply either. Because if you look at the most games on Steam, right? Like Friday the 13th. You guys remember that game? When it launched, it had 16,000 concurrent players. And it, it, it's basically now it's 1,600. And that's over a few months, right? Mm -hmm. This game will be dead in like four months. Mm -hmm. It's going to join the calling. Friday the 13th. There are multiplayer games that everyone kind of jumps on the, on the bandwagon. And it very quickly turns off, and nobody likes it. You know, it, it dies down pretty quickly. Well, you always gonna have bad. I'm not. I'm not saying every multiplayer game is a slam dunk, but you. Have, but there are plenty of yeah. old multiplayer games that are just doing well. They're still doing well. That aren't like MMOs. Like think about like mm -hmm. uh, Payday, Left for Dead. You know, these yeah. games. If you look at Steam charts, you know these are these are still games that are doing really well. They sell a lot every month. They're not like number one performers or anything, but they're you know they're up there. They're they're always being played. So I think I think the key is having multiplayer. I, I mean, it, to me, it seems obvious, but I guess some people haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> and uh, they say that he was talking about what makes gameplay uh, really important. And this was a slide he showed about something called the flow. It's a concept that uh, psychologists studied uh, quite a, quite in depth. And these are the things that lead to maximum happiness. Oh, in, this in, is interesting. In most things. 
Okay. So it, when you talk about flow, it's talk about meaningful work, clear goals, media feedback, cooperation, and challenge to ability. And you talk about how each of these you know, apply to gameplay. And I think you talked about, um, like, for example, if you look at this, like, if, if you get this right, it says people always want to play your game, like, consistently. Yeah. And if you look at, I think, player knows Battlegrounds, off the top of my head, that's like the, that really, I think, nailed this concept down really well, this concept of flow, where everything in the game has clear goals, cooperation with teammates, and obviously, the last one's pretty obvious, it refers to matchmaking, you know, you want to have a, a sweet spot in matchmaking so it doesn't get, you know, too, too, you know, imbalanced. Otherwise, you end up in these really weird spots. If you look at this other chart, how flow works between challenge and skill, it's a very delicate line between challenge and skill, where if you're, if you're on the left side of the equation, if you're getting too challenged, you get frustrated. If, if, if it's too easy, you get bored, right? So mm -hmm. flow's got to be right in that sweet spot in the middle. And, and this way, you talked about games like Hearthstone, League of Legends. Like, it's so obvious that those games were successful. And I, I don't think you can call every successful game, but I feel like, you know, and, and he says, if you, if you want to know which games are going to be successful, talk to gamers, because gamers are the most vocal people out there. They want to talk about their opinions. They want to say what they like. Mm -hmm. If you talk to anyone that played PUBG, anyone that played, like, uh, Hearthstone, these games were like clear winners. And I wouldn't say the same about Here's the Storm. I played Here's the Storm when it launched. I knew it was just weird and it was odd and it really, you know, it might survive, but it wasn't going to be the slam dunk success that these other games were. You know what's creepy? This kind of mm. feels like they're designing like the perfect addictive game. Like they're going to turn it into a science. <laughs> yeah. And actually, the funny thing is at the beginning of his presentation, uh, Owen Mahoney was talking about Moneyball, you know, about uh, this science to gaming. He wants to apply kind of like the principles of Moneyball of, of statistics to gaming and what makes a game successful. You know, he said it's very. Um, he said it was a myth that like it's very hit driven, which is like it's almost like manna from heaven, which game succeeds or not. You know, God picks which game succeeds. You know, but that's not the case. He's, you know, you gotta. And if you looked at games like again PUBG, Hearthstone, you can tell if they were successful pretty early on too. It was very clear that League was gonna be successful and keep growing on itself. Maybe like you could have predicted how successful it would be, but you know these things aren't. Just random. No, you know, I, 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 it's not random, but I don't. I think he's going too much into it. Cause look, for, I compare it to movies, right? Mm -hmm. The movie industry is much older than the gaming industry, right? Mm -hmm. But the movie industry is still driven by hits, and you have you have very successful directors or whatever, right, who spend hundreds of millions of dollars, and even they produce flops sometimes. So I don't think it's a given that if I don't think there's a formula that will lead to a hit in gaming or or movies. No. Because if there but was, I think the movie guys would have found it much sooner than uh, the game guys, because they've been doing it a lot longer. I guess so, because it would seem obvious if you just test it out with like some like a good you know demographic of players to try the game and give your opinion. Then you know, I feel like you could just get it down to a science then too. Well, the good thing about gaming versus movies is like, uh, especially with MMOs, is you can release it in a beta state. Like I remember, I played Maple Story. Uh, during like the first year of the beta in America, right? And it had much less content than it has today, right? So they can mm -hmm. they can do a minimum viable product, see what the players like, and then keep adding stuff to that game and cut the other ones. So movies can't do that. You can't make the first five minutes of, of a blockbuster movie and then see if people like it, then make the next five minutes. You know, you got to make no. this huge movie, spend all this time and money, and then hope, you know, it, it, it does well with audiences, you know? And I think also with movies too, like you have a start and a finish, right? You have this very clear narrative you're trying to tell. With gaming, gaming is supposed to be, you know, interactive, you know, and importance of interaction and immersion experiences. Like when you're playing PUBG, no game is identical. How, you know, you, you respond to things that happen, you know, so you can't present a game like a movie or uh, a movie. No, no, no. I think you're conflating the term game and MMO. I know we're MMOs.com here, so we try to talk yeah. about MMOs, but, you know, gaming 
games, you know, a lot of console games are exactly like movies, in my opinion. Like, you literally... Like, like, like I'd say, the, the latest Final Fantasy. Yeah, there's yeah, some RPGs player input. Are like you, know, movies, you go right? forward yes, and push X, right? But it's mostly, yeah. a, it's mostly like a, it's very, it's not that much different than a movie, in my mm-hmm. opinion. A lot of these single player, you know, one and done games are very comparable to movies, in my opinion. Well, I, I want to bring uh, last slide. I want to talk. I think he, I think Owen Mahoney is clearly incorrect about his. Uh, he's talking about flow, and he brings up Lawbreakers as a, as a great example of a game with meaningful goals, clear, uh, meaningful work, clear goals, immediate feedback, cooperation, and challenge to the ability. He's he was very optimistic about this game, and I think for for everyone listening, it actually just launched today as of, as of the podcast, oh. and it's you know yeah the first piece of news is podcast guys. Yeah, <laughs> he was trying to use an example of a game he believes is going to be successful. I think he's going to be wrong on this one. I think we've talked about it in the podcast in the past. I don't think Lawbreakers will do well, and I've been saying this since the moment I played the game. The first Alpha, I, 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 I've held this opinion, mm-hmm. and I, I've always I wanted to do well because I do like old school games like Quake, these arena shooters. And I'm going to be show you guys some some Steam charts yeah, right now. I, I, br- I brought the Steam charts for Lawbreakers. Basically, guys, it came out today. It's thirty bucks on uh, Steam. Or PlayStation Four. So the numbers you're seeing now are obviously for Steam only. I don't I don't know how to find PlayStation numbers. I'm not a console player. But we got 2,400 players on right now, and the all-time peak, which I think was during beta, so I don't I don't want to count that. But so mm. if you look at a 24-hour peak, which again the game came out today, so that's the peak for today, the launch day, it's a little under uh, 3,000. Which I don't know if that's a great performance for uh, the first day launch there. If this game does phenomenal, I will I will never. I, I will admit I was horribly wrong on mm. predicting success, and my interest does not, you know, necessarily coincide with others. But I am, I've, I was so sure about this game doing poorly, and I think it's going to battle. Somebody, Easy Macula said it was going to Battleborn itself, or somebody, <laughs> no, X three thousand is going to Battleborn. I do think it's going to go the exact same route as Battleborn to a degree. I mean, you're competing with a lot of free to play games. You know, on the buy, on the buy to play front, you have stuff like Overwatch. Obviously, they're not the same exact game. You're free to play a uh, game from uh, Bethesda, the the Quake Champions. It's just I don't know. I, I I played it. Wasn't my cup of tea. Obviously, plenty of people will enjoy the game, and you know, it just I just don't see it doing well. Yeah, and I think I think they will go free to play. So this is like this is like the early access money, uh, retail money grab, before the free to play launch. Hundred percent, it's going free to play. I think. But then we thought I I thought I thought Battleborn would go free to play, and it took forever for them to finally do it. It took years, I think, for them to go free to play, and they 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 even call it free to play. They call it a free trial, mm-hmm. you know. Well, I mean, the difference I think is Nexon is publishing and has a stake in the studio behind Lawbreakers, and Nexon is a free-to-play company. So I think for them to figure out and quickly turn it to turn it to free-to-play is much simpler than a studio. I think I think it was Gearbox that made uh, Battleborn, which is the mm-hmm. guys behind Borderlands, and and they're obviously known for being a retail uh, studio. Like their history is just making a, a retail box experience and shipping it. So for them to shift you know their mindset to free to play is a lot harder than nexon which has been doing it for like forever true true makes sense uh nexon reports their earnings next week so we can talk about some of their numbers uh soon but we can get to uh, another interesting number story uh this time from uh square enix they reported their numbers as well and they had a pretty big bounce recently due to mo revenue namely because uh Storeblood just launched this last week not this last week this last quarter rather drop the link for you I think you made you made an interesting observation over here, which I didn't readily point out right away, is that if you look at the revenue from MMO games, which is accounts obviously Final Fantasy XIV, mm-hmm. Dragon Quest X, and Final Fantasy XI, and it's about 9.3 billion yen, which I think I put down in dollar terms, about 84 million dollars. 
And if you add up all their traditional console game sales, about $100 million, which again, counts everything on consoles, Final Fantasy 15, everything that they did that quarter, it's less than all their mobile games. Yep. So mobile games is the bright spot for Square Enix. So Square Enix is, uh, is booming on the mobile game front. Yep, so for, to re- re-say that again, Square Enix makes more money off mobile already than it does off everything else. Right? That's fair. Yeah, that's because they didn't have the a giant launch either. I think they launched you know, Final Fantasy 15 in the quarter. It'd be a different story. Mm-hmm. But again, those kinds of launches take like 10 years to make because again, Final Fantasy 15 took them forever to make. Yeah, so this is this is more like what I was expecting for after you know, after the weekly raid. If we look at some of these numbers, guys, uh, it's it seems like it's so much easier for these studios to churn out mobile games where people don't get so mad over pay to win. You know, there's no Iron Bank, you know, role players guilds here uh, complaining about Chinese gold farmers. You know, they're they're expected to be, you know, be, they, they expect to be beat by the guys who pay more. <laughs> and look, I do sympathize with a lot of the people that hate mobile games. OK, because remember we talked about the, in a previous weekly rate about what would it take to make you play mobile games. A lot of people said never. I sympathize with a lot of them because so many mobile games are still shit. OK, at least. Again, we in the West may be behind the East in adopting them because in, in Japan, in Korea, in China, mobile games are such a big part of the market. Like half the gaming market is already mobile games and growing in some of those markets. In America, it's it's a lot less, I think, especially amongst the, the hardcore players. The hardcore players in China have already embraced mobile games. In America, they have not. And these games are still so bad, in my opinion, but they're getting better. Again, mm-hmm. I challenge you if, you, if you like MMORPGs, right, it's almost like a case study for yourself, right? I, I challenge you to download a game called Crusaders of Light, okay? I the game is okay, right? It's it's still in this, this. It has a lot of auto playing elements. Play it on your phone for like twenty minutes, and it'll give you an idea of where mobile games are going. Okay, the quality and production value is is going in the right direction. And I think if you look at that game, it's pretty easy to understand that maybe you yourself can embrace mobile games, mobile and more RPGs, especially if you like, you know, if you call yourself a mobile and more RPG gamer, you can you can you can you can see where it's going, and you can eventually embrace it. And I do just just you don't have to play the game long. I, I mean. I'm not getting paid to promote the game either. I wish I was, obviously, but I'm not. But it was a good example of a recent MMORPG. Persistent world, smooth gameplay, good graphics, and some interesting raid dynamics and, and you know, dungeon dynamics you can do in multiple different difficulties. They still do a lot of stuff horribly wrong, like all, all the autoplay nonsense. But, you know, you can... And, and the difficulty curve is awful. It's just stupid easy early on. But if you play it, you'll see that, like, it's getting better. Yeah, and, and what I found really interesting this week, that the top... Financial news of the week for me was the NCSoft soft earnings. So if you could link those, yep. and what I found amazing about this is uh, a new game that, ca- well, not a new game, but a new mobile game that came out for them is Lineage One Mobile. And this is not a this is not a new spin-off game. This is the original Lineage, just ported for mobile, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and even th- so, we're at the point where mobile can play like the one of the earlier MMORPGs, Lineage One, fully normally on a phone. And this is, and nobody calls Lineage One like this garbage piece of shit mobile game. You know, yeah. Lineage One, you know, it's it's an old game, but it's it's consistently remained one of the highest revenue generating MMORPGs in the world. You know, it's a it's a real MMORPG with a persistent world, and you have this game ported over pretty perfectly on mobile, which is why you see the how much you know, Lineage One's revenue plummeted over the last two quarters, right, basically from 100, 118 million million Korean wands, actually one hundred eighteen thousand million Korean wands. Down to uh, less, more like it went down like seventy percent, and they all moved over to mobile, as you can see. All right, so a few points about this this graph here. So let's, first, let's run down. So yeah, like Omar said, the lineage one numbers went down, but that's because th- those players just wanted a mobile version of the game, so the mobile went mm-hmm. up a lot. 
Now let's look at the other ones. Lineage 2 seems about flat, slightly down. Aeon is down a decent amount, right? From 17,000 from uh, the same time last year to now, 10,000. So it's down a big chunk, right? You can look at the bar graphs. Mm -hmm. But here's what here's what I found funny. Look at the Guild Wars 2, Omar. Because you said Guild Wars 2 was an all-time low, right? Yes. I feel like this chart is intentionally trying to make Guild Wars 2 look bad. Because look, look at the numbers. From okay. Q2 2016 to Q2 2017, look at that decline. From 15,000 to 13,000, right? Mm-hmm. Why is the bar half the size when it's only a 2,000 right. degree? It, 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 but, it is half the size. But look it at Aeon. But look at Aeon. Look at Aeon. It's from 17 to 10, which is a much bigger percentage. But the graph, the, the bar is like barely down. You're right. It, it is the, the chart is definitely a bit misleading. This is directly from the NCSoft's own uh, presentation. Mm -hmm. they, they are trying. They are trying to you know play with the play with the numbers yeah. over there. Why are they doing that? Like what, they're making their own. Uh, it's because they're racist against the Western developed Guild Wars 2. There you go. Even though, saw, racist confirmed. Even though they own Guild Wars 2, they're trying to make it look bad with this chart. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't mind if, like, some people complain if, like, the Y chart, if the graphs, if the chart, if they don't start at zero, people get mad. I don't mind that. But whatever standard you use, at least keep it consistent between the, 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 the games, you know, like... <laughs> Yeah, because it's down like uh, like twenty five percent or so, but twenty five percent should not be half that number. Yeah, and I mentioned it. I'm left to comment on this article. I was like, okay, look. So, Guild Wars two fell twenty percent. Aeon fell forty percent. But if you look at the chart, it it shows a way bigger decline for Guild Wars two than than twenty percent. Uh, it's you know it's worth mentioning too. I feel like a lot of us in the West, especially on RMRPG, we kind of uh, laud like Guild Wars two as like this amazing game. And I think it's a good game, right? But People always almost like when I when people talk about MMORPGs, it's usually they almost always talk about World of Warcraft, Guild Wars 2, Final Fantasy 14, and maybe ESO. Like those are the games that pop into people's head and they go like Western good good MMORPGs, right? Mm -hmm. And because I, I was on uh, MO Champion the other day, there's a thread about some some of these numbers that came out, and I, people always bring up Guild Wars 2, but it just seemed like Guild Wars 2 does not really belong in that same conversation. I think it's a good game, but it does have the same cachet. As, or the players as some of these other games. Obviously, that number is going to be quite a bit higher next quarter when they launch the Path of Fire expansion, which was announced last week. So that number was definitely going to increase. I mean, it's I, just that... I disagree with you. I think when people do talk about Western games, Guild Wars 2 is right up there. Yeah, they do. And yeah. I don't oh, think okay. it should be because it doesn't have the numbers. Really? I, I, I think it's a good game. I, I, think... I, I think it's a good game as well, but it, yeah. it's just, not, you know, it's clearly not very popular. I mean, otherwise, they'd have a lot more, lot more numbers, wouldn't they? I think it's a good game. I think it's a great game. But it just... It doesn't belong in the same conversation when you're talking about these these mega games. It, it, World of Warcraft and Guild Wars Two, they seem like so far yeah. apart from each other. I, mean, I gotta do I gotta do the math here. What is I don't know what I don't know what thirteen thousand billion about twelve million dollars. Twelve million dollars. Okay, okay. So twelve million dollars for such a giant game and a game that is almost universally liked or respected well, at least. Not always liked. But I think it's pretty respected. Okay. Twelve million bucks is quarter, uh, is right? jump change in, th in three yeah, in three months. So That's like uh, four million a month. So what does what does like Final Fantasy fourteen do in a month? All we, well, we all we know is that if you forget the expansion numbers that just yeah, yeah, boost yeah, the yeah, revenue, yeah. if we look at the how much money they made in a year, with I think no expansions, it's about yeah. two hundred million dollars they made. Two hundred million versus what forty eight? Well, and that that that's Final Fantasy fourteen, eleven, and Dragon Quest ten. I, I don't think oh. eleven or Dragon Quest ten makes a lot of money though. I think the majority of that is Final Fantasy. Okay, I. Personally, okay, given those numbers, I don't think Guild Wars 2 is an order of magnitude different than Final Fantasy 14. Yeah, it's so let's say 100, 150 million to uh, 50. Yeah, 50 million. Okay. That's, uh, uh, three times. It's the same ballpark, you know. 
But I think it's going in the wrong direction. No, the, we'll see how, how much it jumps from the Path yeah, we, of Fire. Yeah, Path of Fire expansion coming out. It's soon. a big expansion. And the beautiful thing, again, about Path of Fire is that they're going to be launching it so soon after announcing it. You know, It was announced on the first week of August, and it's coming out September, like in a month. And this weekend, you'll be able to try it. You'll be able to see uh, like what the new zones look like. So that's open to like, everyone. That's actually pretty badass that it's going so quickly from announcement to being able to see and play it. That's good shit. I think uh, as someone who's... Uh, played these three games at the bottom here, Aeon, Blade and Soul, mm-hmm. Guild Wars 2. I think Guild Wars 2 has the production value much higher than those other two. I maybe uh, maybe I'm, I think I'm biased against Asian 3D games. Like I love the Korean 2D MMORPGs, whether it's Ragnarok, you know, Maple Story, those are fun, they have character, they have style. But I feel like these 3D Asian games are, are just so generic. Like and they're all so like Man. Blade and Soul is not generic. Blade and Soul is a unique experience. I, I love Blade and Soul, and I'm glad to see Blade and Soul is like such a big franchise for them, and it's really had uh, held steady. Again, but again, if you if you if you look down like where most of that revenue coming is coming from, it's going to be mostly uh, Asia. I think the next slide shows you where it comes from. Maybe we can get some more detail out of that because I'm curious how much money Blade and Soul makes in America. So we can assume, let's say Guild Wars Two, like all that money comes from America, right? Or North America and Europe. Mm-hmm. So they made uh. 28 million over there. So I think it's evenly split between Guild Wars 2 and, and Blade of Soul, right? Actually, no, because, yeah, it should be evenly split. Right? Because there's 28 million, 28,000, right? On that on that number. If you look at the revenue for Guild Wars 2. It's probably all of that, yeah. Yeah, so all of Guild Wars 2 money comes from there, and that's about 13,000, right? Mm-hmm. That means the other half, where could that possibly come be coming from? Which one of the... Lineage 2 is like, nobody plays Lineage 2 in, in, in the West. Okay, the other ones are split between Blade and Soul and Aeon. And Aeon. Yeah. And Aeon's pretty, you know... Old. Old as well. So uh, probably between Guild Wars 2 and Blade and Soul is probably, you know, close split. And, by the way, uh, Guild Wars 2 is still ahead of Aeon in revenues on this chart. So I I think it's fine. It's not going to go anywhere. For now. Yeah. And uh, someone in the chat mentioned uh, BDO. Uh, yeah, BDO is not generic. It's one of the few Korean 3D games I do like. But I was specifically talking about this these six games here, like this NCSoft lineup. I think the... <laughs> The, 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 I love the boob and soul graphics. It's like so like I, I don't know why they went with the oily boob art style. I, I did like the big busty big busty busts in Blade and Soul, but the oily element was kind of weird. I'll give it that. It was definitely weird. It's yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like I don't know the, the, the graphics and some of these uh, Korean 3D games just look weird to me. Like almost like <laughs> cheap. Not BDO though. BDO at least looks like realistic y. High yeah. end. High end gameplay. I had a pretty great uh, screenshot about uh, my Blade and Soul character, where if you put on um, a different outfit, you, your character's boobs literally disappear, like or get like giant based on what costume you're wearing. It's the only game I've seen where your character's physical appearance, like the size of your character's boobs, goes from like a, an A cup to like quad D's, or whatever's after D's, G's. E. It makes E. E's G. D after D is E. Yeah, I know, but let's we'll go, we're going down to G. All right, it, they get pretty pretty enormous when you wear this uh, outfit. All right, Hell Crush players in chat just said, "I get embarrassed playing perfect Eastern MMOs." So cringe, dude. I agree. I agree. Uh, look, I don't. Some of them, very few scenes are like pervy and cringy. I feel like if you're watching anime, you'll probably bump into more cringe scenes than if you get if you play some of these Eastern MMORPGs. I feel like anime always has these weird scenes where like it's very pervy and very baka. But in MMORPGs, even if you're playing Blade and Soul, like you're not always gonna see your boobs flying in the wind like crazy. Nice, Lord Alt. I mean, not even once. <laughs> yeah, the art style debate is an interesting one. I know I might be changing the subject here, but mm-hmm. 
you know, there's a lot of people like me and uh, who who kind of turned off by the whole anime aesthetic. Mm-hmm. But the, the opposite is also true. Like I know here's a here's a big story for the week. Uh, Path of Exile new expansion came out. You know, tons of you know new content, free to play, great business model, no pay to win, uh, and it's doing amazing. It's almost 100k on Steam, and this game is not a Steam exclusive. So you got to add more to that. People like me have been playing for years. We play off Steam with our accounts. So this game is doing really well. Great expansion, great content. But here's the thing. I know so many people. I got to say mostly Asian, to be honest. So many people that are turned off by the visuals, the graphic style. They So it's like the opposite. Like Western pe- Some Western people don't like the anime aesthetic. And some Asians, I feel, don't like that gritty Western aesthetic, Diablo 2 style aesthetic. So what do you think? I, I don't like that either, personally, because I do know, again, people that won't play a game because of this anime aesthetic, this Asian aesthetic. And it seems kind of shallow to kind of write off a game because of that. I, I understand the art style does matter, and it's not going to appeal to everyone, but you shouldn't write off, I think, a great game like Path of Exile because the art style isn't, like, cutesy anime, you know? I, yeah, and the thing is, I actually think the aesthetic is really nice in Path of Exile. It's different, right? But it's, like, if you look at this, you know, vis- these visuals, and if you zoom in, and, and if you have a good computer to, like, you know, play it at max settings and you zoom in, it, it's a good-looking game, in my opinion. It's the aesthetics mm-hmm. are different, but it looks good. My most frustrating thing is I know someone who says, "Oh, I don't like Avatar: The Last Airbender or Legend of Korra because it's not anime." I'm like, "Are you serious? Like, who gives a shit? Like, if it was, you know, like, who animated it? It's still got that same like look to it. Like, just because it wasn't made, I guess, by a Japanese person, it just seems such a silly reason to write something off. Like this, this mm-hmm. attitude of dismissing a game. You know what I find funny? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing is, people like that aren't they have a they have a minimum boob requirement. So if there's any female characters with less than a D cup, that, that you know that that cartoon is off limits for them. <laughs> uh, are you talking about me? It's a broad cross section of the anime audience. No, I mean I, I, I like to think I'll play you know a game even if it's got the mm-hmm. the only thing. Again, the only thing that kind of bothers me sometimes is those cringe moments. And I think Blade, I think I think Blade and Soul had a couple cutscenes where it was like. Look, it's it's it, I think it's fun to let you make your boob as crazy big as you want, right? But like the NPCs have giant boobs as well, and like in the cutscenes, it looks so weird sometimes. Like, and those can definitely be cringe moments. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to make your character like just hilariously busty and fun, and perverted and like overly sexual, that's cool. You know, let that. I don't mind games letting you do that. It's maybe the NPCs shouldn't be entirely that direction. <laughs> and yeah, someone in chat mentioned a great point. Wildstar is another one of those games that I feel like so many people when they first saw it. It's like, eh, the art's not doing it for me. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was a fluid game, you know. Like, I, 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 there were reasons I didn't like it, but the art style was not was not like, not one of them. I think art style was really good in that game. Actually, I liked it a lot. I was like neutral towards it. Like, I didn't know like, in, until someone said something. Someone mentioned it. I think it was Shu. It was like, oh, this art is weird. I don't like it. I, I didn't even think about the art, like one way or the other. So it's, but it is interesting. So again, if you look at the numbers, Pathway is all up to like close to 100,000 concurrent users. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the, the days prior to the launch of the expansion, it was averaging a, a, a little over 10,000. So I don't think I've seen an expansion boost the game's player base, active player base, by like about tenfold. A tenfold jump in active players on Steam alone. I mean, a lot of people are still playing on uh, off Steam, but we don't know have those numbers, obviously. But have you ever seen an update increase the player base tenfold? That seems insane. It's arguably the biggest... Probably arguably the most successful expansion in terms of boosting players and adding content because you had the the six new acts. The easy Mac that I pointed out to me, they weren't entirely new. They bar they use like towns and pieces of other acts to make it. Yeah, yeah. I heard the tenth act is new. 
mm-hmm. and like the fifth one is new or something but then like a lot of the ones in between are just like reused content mm-hmm. which which by the way i don't know yet because i haven't played i was uh, i was gone last week so um after the podcast uh uh we're gonna do some shopping and then i'm gonna play some path of exile make a new character on the new you know league and you guys i'm gonna stream it so you guys can watch me play uh the new expansion if you so, are so inclined yeah, ten times is unbelievably impressive. I think uh, it's Path of Exile is also one of those games that I felt from the get-go was going to be a big success. Like it was going to be a consistent game. Mm-hmm. Now, too many games are popular for like two, three months, and they're like meme games. They're like Twitch meme games or Twitch uh, fad games. But I, I could tell from the get-go that it, it was not one of those games. And I think we were talking previously, like you know, if you were an Exile, what company would you buy? And I think you said Grinding Gear Games because Path of Exile has proven itself to be this, you know, this game with a big lifespan and longevity and you know interesting you know it's i think it's free to play done right as well it's one of the few games i think that really doesn't really offend anybody with the free to play features definitely and if it's one of those games like if um all these companies are looking to buy more studios whether it's tencent netties nixon netmarble they're all looking to buy acquire new companies and number one if any of them called me and one of my advice i'd say listen pay whatever it takes and buy grinding gear games one they make a great game and two, they know how to reach. They know how to make their game free to play, and the monetization reach Western gamers. Because the thing is, so many you know companies like NetEase has said this before. Their games do well in China, but they can't do well here because I think they're not used to you know making their games appeal to Western audiences from like a monetization point. It's like it's too obviously pay to win. You know? <laughs> and, and just to give you guys some context, I'm sure not a lot of people know what NetEase makes. They make they make um. That Crusaders are like game, the mobile game I did a video for. They also make uh, what was the what was that game where we killed all those like food, the dumplings? Revelation Online. They make Revelation, Revelation Online. So these are games that you know they they didn't you know my.com published Revelation, but it is developed by Netties, and yeah. they're the second biggest gaming company in China. I think they're worth as much as Activision Blizzard. They're like a forty plus billion dollar company, but their games again they don't appeal to Westerners just yet. And it's a funny story. Uh, so so you know, we have, obviously we have pretty strong opinions on uh, Revelation Online, whether it's a good game or not. But putting those aside, right? Whether you think Revelation's a good game or not, if you played it like we have, wasn't it just confusing? Like, when I opened a cash shop, yes. I just don't know what to do. Like, it, like, let's say I want to give them $100. There's just so much weird stuff going on. Like, there's all these update upgrade items, and I just could not figure out how to give them my money and, and what to do with what I got with the money. So, whereas in Path of Exile, I know exactly what I can get with the money. I can get cosmetics, and I can get uh, more inventory space in my in my stash. So it was very it was very simple to me what I was getting for my money. And even like in Albion, right? Like I, I know I pay money, I get gold. With gold, I can buy game time or transfer it to silver and buy stuff in game. So I knew where my money was going. But in Revelation, I just could not figure the mechanics out. Uh, it was just confusing. Revelation is one of those games that made me feel dumb. But I, I, I realize <laughs> it's, it's not me anymore because it wasn't just the cash shop. It was... You pl- the way the game was structured, right? You're literally for the first, I think, two hours, you're on this rail where you basically click like next quest. Your character runs and you kill like two enemies. You go to the next quest, and for an hour you're just completing these quests like boom, 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 boom. A quest every thirty seconds, right? Mm-hmm. And these weird cutscenes you're always skipping in between them. And by the time you're done, like now you got to kind of figure out where you want to go, do your dailies, and you have a- the game opens up after like two hours of doing these like rail missions, right? And then you open up your inventory and and you you, you freeze up. You look at your inventory, there is a ton of shit in your inventory. Like, I have these eggs of something. I have these, like, I, there's, there's like a hundred different items in inventory, and I have no idea what they do. None. Zero. Zilch. There's so much shit in your inventory. 
and they're confusing. You don't know what they do. You, like, should I keep this? Should I throw it away? I'm running out of inventory, inventory space. What do I do? Like, you don't know what to throw away. You have tokens for one NPC, tokens for a different NPC. It was unbelievably complicated. It, it, I'm sure if you just really sat down and tried to figure it out, you could, but it was. It got to a point where like I, I didn't want to figure it out. It was too daunting. You know, it was just too much. Yeah. So, long story short, I think Path of Exile is not a simple game either, right? It's you know, mm -hmm. it, there's a there's randomly generated you know modifiers for all all the equipment that drops. There's like there's over a hundred different skills based on these gems and interactions. But I think they can they can help many other studios figure out how to present their games in a way that's still complicated and still can be monetized, but is more uh, approachable by Western audiences. Chinese MMORPGs have a tendency to have like a million different ways to make your character stronger. Like you have like a weapon upgrading system, you have like this rune upgrading system, you have like these seven different kinds of skill trees. It's never so clear cut. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess it, that works in China, right? It's it's fine, but it just, it does not, because maybe they grew up playing a lot of those games and they all had that system, right? But I think a lot of Western MMORPG players, they grew up playing Western MMORPGs and, and Korean ones, right? And there's a, there's a world of difference between Korean MMORPGs and Chinese MMORPGs. Chinese MMORPGs throw like a million systems at you, like so many different ways to make your character stronger. And it's just confusing. If you're not willing to put in the time, you get frustrated very quickly. And I got frustrated almost with every Chinese MMORPG I've played, whether it's Browser or Revelation Online. And I, and I really think I gave Revelation an earnest attempt to like play it because we played it because, you know, we, uh, yeah. they ran at, at, we, we did two Grindfest videos for it, I think. And they advertised with us. So I, I wanted to see what the game was about. You know, I genuinely wanted to give it a fair shake. Yeah. It was not my cup of tea. No. Uh, back, back to uh, Steam charts here. So obviously the, it went down slightly since the peak when it launched, but uh, Path of Exile is still number four on Steam overall. So number one is Dota, number two is Counter-Strike, and that's been the one and two for a long time now. Three is PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds, and uh, number four, sitting pretty at Path of Exile. I'm very happy to see it there. And like I said before, mm -hmm. this is not the total player base. There are lots of players, returning players, new players, that probably just go right through their, um, their own website, their own launcher. So it's, it's good stuff. Good stuff. I'm happy it's doing well. He's like to make a good point too, that he played D3 and it was just too simple and it got really boring. And actually the way you described Diablo 3 to me, because I didn't play Diablo 3, I played Diablo 2 and 1, of course. Uh, he said it was too simple and it became really boring. So I think the opposite is true as well, where you get too frustrated on the, the bullshit complexity. It's, yeah, it's not even complex. It's just, they just throw a million things at you. Where if it's too simple, it gets very boring very quickly too. Well, because... This yeah. is a great time to bring back that chart that uh, Mr. The, chart. the Mr. Mahoney at Nexon point out. See the flow. All right, you can't you can't make it too boring like Path of Exile. I mean, excuse me, like, like Diablo three, and you can't make it too frustrating like uh, Revelation Online with all these different tokens and currencies. You know, you got to get that flow just right. Now, I'll, I'll drop the link to this uh, this video. This again, this this presentation was you know more aimed at investors and fund managers looking at investing in game companies. But I thought you know he talked a lot about the industry, and I thought I thought it was pretty fascinating. So if you like the industry side of this, uh, maybe some of the flow charts we showed, uh, it, it's an hour long. I, I'm listening. I usually listen to these presentations at two times speed because you, you get the whole message even at two times speed. But uh, I, th I thought it was pretty cool. The only thing I think is a kind of frustrating about Path of Exile is it's kind of like Diablo 2 in that there is no easy skill reset. Resetting a single skill is a very expensive currency it takes in-game. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy in Path of Exile to mess In fact, everyone was going to mess up their first character in Path of Exile. So that means if you actually want to play it optimally, you got to make a new character and just redo a lot of the content that you already did. Mm -hmm. And then you're just going to be like, damn, I wasted 10 hours on that useless-ass character I made because I put the points everywhere. 
So, <laughs> you screwed it up. Yeah, and and that reminds me of Diablo 2, right? Uh, where you just could not reset your yeah, skills. Yeah, there's no way to reset skills yeah. in Diablo 2 at all. Diablo 3 made, t- took the easy approach. There is there is no like allocation of skills. You just unlock skills as you level for each class, and you can just switch them in and out at any time. But that's not good. That seems so like bad, because every you know paladin is the same as every other paladin. Every yes. character, you know... Yes. It's going to be the same. Mm-hmm. And, and I really hate that about MMORPGs too because like we've seen like a lot of old school Korean MMORPGs, they give you a lot of like skill builds and like skill trees, right? But I feel like we've lost skill trees to a degree. You know, WoW kind of made it popular with talent trees. But if you play uh, Final Fantasy XIV, every single Black Mage, every single Paladin, every single everything is identical. There is literally not one iota of difference to the, the skills they have. There's, in fact, they, they, there used to be a stat system in the game. They got rid of it because there was there's only ever one proper way to do stats, right? So they just got rid of it. And that was smart to get rid of it because <laughs> yeah. it was so poorly designed anyway that they got rid of it. But it, it's frustrating that my Black Mage has the same exact capabilities as any other Black. Same skills, same everything. Like, I should be able to at least specialize in maybe one way to make myself different. Even if it's like very nuanced differences. Maybe like 1% more damage, 1% more mana regen, slightly different cooldown reduction. And when you have this kind of control over your characters, I think it makes you more invested in your character. It just feels cheap, I think, to be the same as everyone else. And you, The game actually had this pretty cool system too. When, um, you know, for example, if you, if, you had, if you had a level 15 archer, you had a skill called um, something strikes. I forgot what it's called. I don't know why it escaped me right now. It's a cross skill. So you could actually have that skill in other characters. So as a black mage, it was imperative for me to have a level 15 archer. It's all in one character anyway. I can switch to an archer, level to 15. I get the raging strikes, it was called. And when I unlock that ability, I don't have to play archer anymore because I got that skill on him. And that's the only useful archer skill that's a cross skill that I need. So when I'm back on my black mage, I can actually use that archer skill. So it kind of gave me an incentive to level up other classes because it would actually help my character, right? Mm-hmm. In that game, again, you can literally max everything out. I, th- I thought that was really cool, but they got rid of that as well because I guess maybe they figured that it, it was too much to ask for to expect players to level everything up, you know? So that one form of customization, that one bit of like way to differentiate your character is gone in the game now, which I think is unfortunate. Now there's literally no way to make your character different in any which way, shape, or form. Nice. Uh, Pistol points out that Rift still has in-depth class building. Yeah, I-, I like that. I think, you know, I think a lot of modern games kind of gave up with that. And again, you mentioned Diablo, Diablo 3 kind of just doesn't have that either, which is unfortunate. We still have games that have it, but I feel like games are moving away from that, unfortunately. Yeah. And some of the Western games are going too, you know, too simple. I mean, I remember Rift at launch was actually, I think, I think they actually made it slightly easier since free to play, but Rift at launch had the most complicated, a triple classing system. So, you know, some, some games had double yeah. class, this game had triple class. Uh, but the new system is, is pretty, and by new, it's like as old as hell now, but mm-hmm. yeah, Rift is still a solid game. Rift is a, an oddball. I think they had like, they were, they were very unsure about their business model. They, it's free to play, but then they launched a paid expansion. Hmm. That's always weird for me when you have a free to play game and it's like, first Rift started as subscription based. You had to buy it and subscribe. Then it went fully free to play and like the next year expansions were all free to play. And then they launched a buy to play expansion. It, it's just confusing. I, I don't like when games do that. Stick with one model. Indeed. All right. That's actually, I mean, let, let me bring up another fun bit of news. This is actually the most perplexing things to me because what this last week, Dark Eden, which is which is a self-proclaimed best horror MRPG of 2017, Wait, uh, relaunched this week again. What I is say this? Odd be- <laughs> I say odd because it's literally the fourth or fifth time this game has relaunched. It's the same game. It's been first of all, the original game came out in 1997. 
Wow. So I'm not sure why they say they're the best horror MMORPG. I don't think there are any other horror MMORPGs in that running. Hold up. But you know, they're the self-proclaimed best horror MMORPG. Whenever you say horror, I just hear horror. So I was like, wait, the best horror MMORPG? <laughs> horror. Okay, there you go. All right. But it's like this, because you mentioned Diablo, and it kind of reminded me of this as well. It's got like this Diablo 1 art style. And, and this game was kind of cool, right? When it, when, you know, I remember playing this ages ago. Mm-hmm. But it's just so weird to relaunch this game again. Isn't this game already on Steam? Oh, yeah, it is. But no, this is Dark Eden Origin. The one that's on Steam is called Dark Eden Cataclysm. Uh, the same game, though, right? Yeah, of course. But if, if you go on a Steam charts right now and you search uh, Dark Eden, actually, you get both versions of the game. Because this Dark Eden uh, Origin is coming out um, on Steam on the 17th on August. It's already out on GamingGame.com. I gave you the link for it. But it, they're going to be competing with each other on Steam. And they are literally the same exact game. Uh, well, we'll see which of them has more players. I mean, I don't think Dark Eden will be hard to beat with 12, so... Yeah, it's at 12. <laughs> and I was looking at the differences. I think they, they said the graphics were slightly improved. Maybe my eyes are bad. I couldn't see the slightly improved graphics in that video. It looked the same as Dark Eden always did. And a slightly revamped story. But come on, nobody's playing this game for the story. Literally nobody. So, Omar, are you going to play the Slayer, the Vampire, or the Ouster? <laughs> So he actually made a good point. Uh, there was actually that Requiem MMO. So there is actually the second horror MMORPG. You're right, uh, Crunky Fish. My bad. I forgot about Requiem. Bloody Mare. Or Memento Mori, whatever it was called. Uh, those are the expansions. But uh, Requiem from War Portal was the only other horror MMORPG out there. So I guess Dark Eden is not the only one. My bad. There's one other game. Though it's really just a fantasy game with like some darker tones to it. Uh, I'm not optimistic. This is this game. It is celebrating its what twentieth anniversary. If it came out in nineteen ninety seven. But yeah, this yeah. game's been out for twenty years. Pretty impressive, you know. This this old old game. It, I don't think it ever did very well in America. Mm-hmm. I think it it did well in its home market in Korea. I think in Korea they have Dark Eden two, but that never went anywhere, or at least never came out in America. I I am glad that this is on Steam. I think I think a lot of these old MMORPGs, um, they're a lot more accessible just for people who want to like see. No, from a historic perspective, it's much easier to access on Steam than trying to fiddle with um, old YouTube videos or private servers or whatnot. Mm. So I'm glad I'm glad it's being preserved by somebody. And this game was like kind of cool because you had like slayers, like guns and stuff too. So like you had like almost these modern elements, like you know, and it was slayers, hunters, and vampires, and it was a really interesting war between like the vampires. They were in on the vampire craze before like Twilight, all right. They got, they got in on this pretty early. And there are some really cool design elements here. And I think the, like, back then, I, I hate to always harken to the olden days, but, like, a lot of these old games had some pretty unique design. And I feel like so many games today really fit the mold of just being WoW clones. Or, like, there's really only so many archety- ar- archetype of games out there anymore. You have, like, the WoW clone, and you have the 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 knockoff of Dungeon Fighter Online where you have instance uh, dungeons and persistent towns. Like, those two genres alone... Or encompass like 80% of MMORPGs. And you have ARPGs, right? This top-down isometric look, right? Those like three types of games, I feel like, describe so many games. And even amongst all the WoW clones, there are rarely like things in the game that make it much different than other games. Like it's, it's so... It's unfortunate. There's yeah. so much... In this game, there's so much innovative design involved. You play the game or you played it back in the day, you'll, you'll recognize it, but I don't recommend this game to anyone today because it's old and really hard to get into. You know what it looks like to me? Hmm. If it looks like it looks like uh, Diablo one, but you're with a higher resolution, like you zoomed out more, like with the mouse wheel, like you zoomed out, so your camera is further hmm. away. But it's like Diablo one. 
And worth mentioning, somebody mentioned that's why BDO is lit. And I do get BDO, at least uh, it does a lot different. And again, which is why we, we kept being surprised that it was a Korean developed MMORPG. You know, we always have that, I guess, this. I mean, we do kind of view Korean games often as like these uh, un, you know, uninspiring games, but BDO was definitely did something different. And they really had production value with that as well. So they did a phenomenal job. And BDO is still killing it on Steam as well. Let's see how it's doing. Black Desert Online. And this shows that there is, oh, there is, I think that people are still very fascinated with MMORPGs and they want an MMORPG to play, which is why Black Desert is doing so well on Steam, which is why Albion Online's launch had so many people. Again, we have no official numbers because it's not on Steam, but easily over 25, 30,000 players were playing Albion. And people are interested, they want to play an MMORPG. You know, there's always hype for that next MMORPG, and it's there because everyone wants to, you know, the genre has so much potential, infinite potential, which is why, again, all these Kickstarter games that promise innovative elements like Star Citizen, Chronicles of Valyria, Asher Creation, they, they raise all this money on, on hope because everybody wants this great new MMORPG. Uh, well, if those of you who want a new MMORPG and are just console plebs, there is some hope for you. Uh, Blade mm -hmm. and Soul is coming to consoles. And this is following, really yeah. yeah, yeah. This is following a huge list of games coming to console, or that already came to console. Whether it's Elder Scrolls Online, Neverwinter, Skyforge, DC um, Universe Online, Black Desert, and even my uh, game of choice this today, later today, Path of Exile is coming to Xbox One, Terra, etc. So we got a lot of games coming on console, and Blade and Soul will join them. How do you think it'll do? I, I think. Both Terra and BDO lend themselves better for consoles. And Blade and Soul is an action MRPG, so it'll still be decent on consoles. I'm trying to think because there's a lot of buttons you need. Like, especially when you're doing PvP. For PvE, you're fine, right? But there is really, you do have to regularly use a lot of skills. And that's what I kind of liked about um, Blade and Soul. It's one of the few games where you really felt like you had a lot of skills to use. Like, you got to be efficient in DPS or efficient in PvP. You don't just mash two buttons, you know. You can't win by mashing two buttons. You have to actually use all your abilities, and you had so many abilities. So that's why it kind of makes you question if it can be practical on a controller. I'm sure they'll design around it, and it's, it's certainly possible, because it's going to happen. They, they, they talked about it in their earnings call that they're going to make this game on console. But I think it'll be a little harder than maybe Terra or uh, BDO. But again, BDO has a lot of, lot of buttons still, you know. So mm -hmm. seeing how BDO works on a console, like on, on a controller, will be interesting. I think because it's an because it's an action MMORPG, it'll still do very well though. And I think Blade I think Blade Souls is a great game. I really enjoyed it. And I actually just redownloaded it, so I'll probably give it another another whirl. The storytelling isn't awful either. You know, it's got the production value for like the cutscenes, the stories. So it's not it's not terrible either. Obviously, you don't play an MMORPG for a story, except maybe some parts of Final Fantasy XIV I think are phenomenal. Or Star Wars: The Old Republic. I think this will do well though. Well, all right. Well, I hope so. Uh, and Quickly, I just realized. So, people were complaining about the optimization in Path of Exile, and you know that's an old game now. You know, Path of Exile is you know when I, I played it on a, I played it on like a first gen i7, okay, and I don't I didn't because uh, our first computers here were we moved to um, Vegas, Vegas in 2010 were first gen i7s and it was fine, never chugged. So, some of you guys out there are really really playing on some old ass PCs. Let me tell you, uh, when I complain about optimization, which I do sometimes. Like when PUBG launched, it was giving me optimization issues on a modern i7, like like you no know, one year ago. Top, yeah, you have a and, top of line PC. Yeah, top of line 1080 GTX, and I was still chugging, right? So that <laughs> is bad optimization. Uh, Path of Exile, if if Path of Exile is chugging for you, uh, I think the problem lies, you know, on your end. Sorry to say. 
Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I, I do feel like you you know you need to have a decent PC, mm-hmm. and I feel like considering how much you know most of us play PC gaming, I mean it's not unusual to spend money on keeping your PC up to date. I mean considering how many hours of entertainment you get out of it, I think any amount of money I spend on my PC or even if I have a new keyboard or, or mouse or whatever, it's compared to the value I get for going to the movies or eating out, like nothing beats you know PC gaming for me because I get countless hours of fun and enjoyment. I think that's a good rant for post-game, guys. Uh, right. So many people, I feel, are so cheap when it comes to their PCs, even though like they're, they're on their PCs all day. Like, I've updated my PC once in the past seven years. I've, I've, I've mm-hmm. changed computers once in seven years. And I, you know, I changed my phone, like, way more. Every two years, I changed my phone. And this phone, guys, by the way, these phones aren't cheap. I think the cheapest you can get, like, an iPhone now is, like, a thousand bucks, right? Like, 600 or 700, I think. Oh, if you get the smallest size, I think it's more than 700, especially with tax. But anyway, my, we'll save that for the post game. You can hear me bitch about people who are too cheap. Bitch to- about people being too cheap on their for their PCs. That's especially when they spend money on other shit. You know, yeah. If, if you're broke, I get it. Obviously, you know, save your money. But if you're blowing money on like nonsense, yeah, money uh, better spent on PC. Indeed. So if you want to hear more of that nonsense, stay tuned. Uh, if you miss it on YouTube, catch us live so you can hear it in person next time. All right, take it easy, guys. Later for YouTube.